And we're back with Dr. Janusz Petkowski. Now, <laughs> one of my favorite ideas within astrobiology and indeed biology itself, but also one of the more spooky ones that I know of, is the idea of a shadow biosphere. Could you give us an overview of a shadow biosphere? Yes, so the idea of a shadow biosphere is an idea that uh, there is a parallel, so to speak, life or a biosphere that is completely separate from chemically separate and, and has a separate origin from our own life here on Earth. So we know from various, of course, our biochemical studies, genetic studies and generally studies of our own biology and our own biosphere that we all have a common ancestor, one single common ancestor. So we more or less all life that we know on Earth works in a similar way, is built from the same uh, components, uh, from, for example, has the same genetic polymers like DNA, RNA, and so on, so on. So we know that life at some point originated on this planet and that one particular, if it originated multiple times, then one particular branch of this life, our own life, actually actually survived and to this day and we all are related to each other everybody from from animals plants bacteria uh, even to to our wonderful viruses we all live we all have the same schematic of life we we have the same genetic code more or less like we have the same genetic polymers as i mentioned we all sort of use the same uh, the same type of biochemistry, we use proteins and so on and so on. And we had the same common ancestor. So there was some, there was one, one type of life, one, one, one uh, organism at some point that survived and gave, gave, essentially, um, gave essentially the rise to everything that we have around. Uh, we essentially are survivors of this, of this one ancestor. But what if, what if there is if life, for example, originated on Earth multiple times, and there are multiple paths for origin of life, what if there are other remnant, remnants uh, of, that, of these other variants of life that could, in principle, uh, that, uh, that could, in principle, exist somewhere in, in some ecological niches, in some environments that are not that easily colonized by our own life, or even that there is some other type of life that actually exists in parallel to our own life. It's, for example, very different. It is, for example, very different than our own life and hence very difficult to detect, or maybe even very rare that essentially any kind of attempts of detection are masked by the overwhelming abundance of our own life and, for example, our own life's um, uh, waste products, for example, and so on, so on. So, so, the sig so any signals that would come from this alternative shadow biosphere, so to speak, are masked by, by the overwhelming abundance and domination of our own type of biosphere. And this idea, this is, a, of course, highly speculative idea and highly hypothetical. Nevertheless, it is actually, it is actually considered in the, in the literature from time to time is actually quite of an interesting one um, because uh, what we what would we actually look for if we were to look for this shadow biosphere and this is something of a, i will leave it with a cliffhanger and i let uh, 
and I let you actually ask a question, ask questions about this about this topic because I know that probably probably you have many. The idea of the shadow biosphere comes with a rather unusual possibility that we don't often think about. The idea of multiple occurrences of abiogenesis on a planet, meaning that new life still occurs. And sometimes perhaps it gets snuffed out by the extant life here, or sometimes it becomes a shadow biosphere completely separate and that we just don't know how to look for it. We've never found it, but what happens if we find some, you know, at some point a, an organism that has an opposite chirality than every other organism here on earth, or you find again, something, a potential one that recently happened was a variation in DNA. Could you go into that finding? Yes, because there are there are there are some uh, questions. What would actually constitute a shadow biosphere? And that's actually a very very important question. Where, where how different the biosphere would have to be to be considered a, a bios a shadow biosphere? And we are going to probably uh, go into details regarding this question later in the um, in the interview, but. Recently, there was a very interesting, uh, very interesting um, discovery that actually brought us a little bit, a little bit closer to the to the idea of the shadow biosphere here on Earth. And uh, and 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 this actually was a discovery of a virus. So, so not exactly a cellular, regular cellular type of life, but nevertheless, uh, um, depending how you define define life a, a living living uh, living system living organism that actually uses a different type of um, of of uh, genetic polymer I mean a different a different letter in a genetic in a genetic polymer so in in specifically speaking our own genetic polymer of the most of the most of life on earth uh, if we talk about DNA contains this uh, four four letters or four for bases, for nucleobases, the, the adenine, timine, cytosine, and guanine. And this particular virus that was that is essentially a virus that attacks bacteria, so it's called a bacteriophage, actually substitutes the adenine, so the A letter in the DNA, with another letter, which is uh, which we can call for the for the sake of the of this interview, we can call it Z. So, in other words, it has a genetic alphabet that is Z, T, C, G, and not A, T, C, G, as the rest of the life here on the planet that uses DNA. So, that's actually a very interesting, uh, very interesting discovery, because this means that for the first time we have an example of some complicated, some, some system, some biological entity that actually uses a different genetic polymer than the rest of the tree of life. It is, and then, then this opens all kinds of possibilities because we would ask a question, okay, so why this was not detected before? Why it is suddenly now detected? Why these viruses are detected right now, and, and why they weren't weren't they detected, for example, where where we were much much earlier? In fact, they were actually detected in the 1970s, 
by the Russians, but that this detection of this virus was sort of forgotten for quite a, for quite a long time. And now only it, it this, this uh, wonderful virus resurfaces uh, again. And the reason why it actually was, uh, was missed is because, unfortunately, this is one of the problems of the detection of this type of so-called weird life, is that we are actually using our methods of detection that are also biased towards life that we know and not life that we do not know. So, for example, we, we use all kinds of molecular techniques to actually detect various new species of microbes and, and bacteria, and those are specifically tailored to, to uh, amplification of DNA that is this canonical DNA that is A, T, C, G, and not this non-canonical, for example, Z, T, C, G, DNA. So you can see now that why, wh what we have, what, what problem we have. If we are looking, and of course these viruses are still part of our own biosphere, so they are not exactly a shadow biosphere, not completely different origin, but they are nevertheless our borderline shadow biosphere because they use some basic biological, most, most fundamental biological um, polymer, the genetic polymer that is different than everything else that we have here on Earth. It, and, this, and our methods of detection are exclusively biased towards detecting life that we already know. So that's why imagine that you have a that you have a shadow biosphere that not only is very scarce, it inhabits some niches that are generally difficult to study, like, for example, some extreme environments that are very hot, for example, or very acidic, or, or, weak, or, 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 or otherwise not really exactly habitable by our own environment, by our own life, but also are using some molecular and biochemical systems that our tools, our detection tools, are not exactly tailored to detect. And that means that we might be, and this is of course speculative, but it's a nevertheless a very interesting speculation to have, we might actually have a situation that we actually do not detect entire biospheres or a very peculiar biochemical and genetic or and in otherwise biological systems simply because we do not have proper tools to detect them. Because our molecular, our molecular molecular approaches that we have are specifically tailored towards detection of life that we know, a common life that we all are, uh, uh, that we all are descended from. Within this, and here comes a highly speculative question, and it's a question of plausibility. The idea of a panspermic shadow biosphere where a biosphere from another planet is, you know, planets sneeze on each other through panspermia, the exchange of rocks, we find Mars rocks in the Antarctic. The idea that Mars's microbes, should they exist, could have been deposited here, and we simply don't know what we're looking for, and there could be alien life from Mars all around us in the rooms that we're talking to each other from. Yeah, that's a very interesting point. What is the probability, in other words, uh, what you ask for, ask about is the, what is the probability that a li life that is going to be transported to another planet on which the biosphere actually, actually already thrives. 
survives and takes hold sufficiently that it can actually be potentially detected. We, we have to be aware and uh, that whatever new life that is being transported from another planet here on Earth would have to would be at the huge disadvantage from the from the start. It would obviously be transported from an environment that it was adapted to. Let's say that we transport some microbe from Mars. It was perfectly adapted to survival of the Mar in the cold Martian desert, and it suddenly lands in the middle of the of the equatorial jungle. It's not exactly the environment in which in to which this this new microbe is adapted and not only that so it has to overcome that problem and at the same time it also has to immediately adapt or overcome the competition from already existing life if these two lives of course if these two lives these two types of life use the same building blocks for its own survival and reproduction and so on or like the same chemistry or similar chemical building blocks like organic chemicals for example so this is a problem it's it's not that it is impossible but if you but the cross-contamination and this is my opinion of course viewers might have a different opinion on that topic i think that the it depends when such a cross-contamination of the panspermia shadow biosphere happened in the history of the planet. If it happened early enough, it might actually lead to persistence of these two biospheres on the planet, if they, especially if they, for example, later on in the evolution, separated into different ecological niches and, for example, using different different uh, environments to, to survive, so they do not really interfere in each other's affairs. But if it happens, if such, a if such a panspermia event happens later in the history of the development of the biosphere, like for example now, transportation of a microbe from Mars to, to Earth now, I think that the chances of survival of this additional shadow biosphere would be much lower. Now say we wanted to look for the shadow biosphere, do we have any hope of finding a starting point to know what to look for? For example, and this is a sort of a side question, your thoughts on non-organic life, say silicon as the, as the base, and say it's silicon but still uses water as a solvent, but that wouldn't really have a whole lot of commonality with us. And if it did, the materials for it to survive are so common here, you know, it would eat rocks you know, <laughs> and use water. We've got plenty of that. So there wouldn't be any kind of a scarcity. So the question is, is could, how would we even, where would we start to look for this kind of stuff? Oh yeah, and this is this is unbelievably difficult question to to, to answer. If you, if we have, if, if the shot, it depends what is the degree of the, of the uh, of the of the difference between these two biospheres, uh, and I will get back to your question uh, very soon. The point is, if those biospheres are actually uh, very very distinct, then obviously the, our our methods of detection are going to be would have to be very very different and much more general to look for some special special features of life that that's that all life has to have. For example all life has to have a genetic polymer of some sort. It doesn't matter what, uh, what this polymer is, from, which, from what it is 
built, from what building blocks it's, it's built, it has to be able to carry information. So it has to be a polymeric structure of some sort. We might, and people, this is this is um, this is work of uh, of various people. For example, Professor Stephen Banner that suggests that the universal feature of all life everywhere, shadow biosphere, non-shadow biosphere, other life on other planets, even life in another solvents, not water, but for example, even sulfuric acid or maybe even cold um, methane seas of um, of Titan, is that it would need this polymer, this this. Um, this chemical, um, this this informational polymer, that that this genetic polymer, and he postulates that one of the one of the important features of that is that you have this charged backbone of uh, of the of the genetic polymer. In our DNA, for example, this charged backbone is the phosphate. Is this phosphorus phosphorus backbone of the DNA? But it doesn't have to be as long as as long as there is something that has a has a charge on it, it would work. So if you design, for example, if you could design some probes that look for weird life, but always look for some polymers that have charged elements in them. And that, for example, the phosphate groups on Earth here in our life, but it might be some sort of amine, quaternary amines, positively charged amines as well, or some other. In this regard, we have a negatively charged polymer, the other alien life might have a positively charged uh, a polymer, genetic polymer, and so on. Even silicon, if you think about silicon, uh, we wrote the entire paper about the possibility of silicon-based life. It, it is very difficult, it's very, it's very difficult to envision silicon-based life that is that is actually uses silicon entirely, but it, there might be some hope for silicon if it is actually an additional component of the biosphere but not or the biochemistry, but not the main building block of biochemistry in general. The, the reasons for it is because it actually reacts with water and eventually forms this insoluble silica. And this doesn't give you enough chemical diversity to actually build anything interesting, biologically speaking, from silicon in water environment. There are some other solvents that, for example, this peculiar solvent of sulfuric acid that might maybe give you a little bit more diversity in terms of silicon. But this is, again, if you build some peculiar uh, biochemistry from it, you probably have to follow this idea of having this genetic polymer. So looking for some sort of genetic polymer is the way to go. Looking for this backbone that is has to be charged, it has to be charged because the polymer has to fold in a certain way and not really to and 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 dominate the and discharge essentially dominates the chemical and physical properties of this polymer to such a degree that you can change and mutate these little letters of genetic code and do not change the physical and chemical properties of the entire polymer the essential the chemistry of the of the DNA stays the same, no matter if this DNA is built from A, uh, adenines all the time, or if it actually has some other letters in it. it. It has the same chemical behavior. That's why you actually have can have evolution. You you change one letter and the your entire polymer behaves in the solution in water in the same way. It doesn't precipitate and doesn't fold in a very weird way but it allows for change and it allows for evolution. So it depends how 
and uh, how different this chemical, this shadow biosphere can, uh, can be. There might be some very different bio genetic polymers, like for example, some completely, completely different uh, uh, polymers that have different backbone. And this might be also, as this example of this uh, peculiar bacterial viruses that I mentioned, that actually have this Z letter or amino, amino adenine instead of a regular adenine in their, in their genetic polymer and still be, be actually quite peculiar and not detectable by the usual, usual techniques that we have. So if we actually look for molecular biology techniques, so if we actually look for this shadow biosphere, we have to employ some sort of tricky, very interesting approaches to, um, to detect something that might be actually a general phenomenon of all life which is essentially some some form of char, char, charge on this polymer that could that could actually dominate its its chemical uh, chemical properties even without invoking a shadow biosphere and just in, invoking biodiversity here on earth this amino adenine find shows that we don't know all the rules on earth life and that we could have a very significantly huge amount more of microbial life on this planet than we ever even suspected existed. It could just unlock a whole new area of Earth's biosphere. It's a native one. Now, the next question is, and this is where we get into the long distant past in regards to uh, shadow biospheres, remnants of the RNA world that might still be with us. Now, we should give a little overview of the RNA world, which I'll let you do that. Yes, so there is general idea that before our now dominant genetic polymer DNA came to the forefront of our own evolution, the majority of life essentially on Earth as it evolved and as it originated was actually using RNA as its genetic polymer and also for its sort of, so to speak, executive branch of biochemistry. So for its enzymes, for its catalysis and so on. RNA is different from DNA in several, uh, several instances, but the main, main idea is that instead of the letter T or the nucleotide T uh, in, the, in, the, in, in the RNA, you have uracil, so a different letter in, in it. And the idea was that that the, generally the RNA world preceded, preceded the, the invention of the DNA. The reason, the reasoning for that are, are multiple, but the main one is also that RNA in itself actually has catalytic properties as well, something that DNA doesn't necessarily have. And so this opens the possibility for a very early life to not only carry information in its genetic polymer, so RNA, but also carry a function that, that in, the, uh, in the same polymer as well. So essentially you have information stored in the polymer and also the polymer itself actually does something meaningful, chemically speaking, in your biochemistry. In our modern life, most of it at least, in, in, on our Earth, you have the information stored in the DNA, then it's actually transcribed onto RNA, and from RNA it is, it is then translated into proteins. And then, in generally speaking, these proteins are actually this our executive branch 
of biochemistry. So they do all the kinds of biochemical reactions that we have to we have to have to live. But the very early life on Earth likely only had this RNA component. And eventually, of course, this might be might happen that this type of complexity that could be achieved, complexity of various functions and biochemical possibilities, was simply too low for RNA to 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 sustain it. And the, some addition was required. And, and this, this addition led to the eventual development of, for example, proteins and also the, the distinctiveness of these functions in the in the biochemical repertoire. So developing of DNA as a as a, as an information storage material and not RNA and so on, so on. But who knows? What if this RNA world or some remnants of this life that used RNA exclusively, very old examples, if they existed, what if there are some examples in which these beings still thrive? And this is, of course, a speculative idea, but nevertheless a possibility. This would be actually quite difficult to also detect because they would likely be quite different. But of course, at least they would have the RNA, which is basically something that we know how to detect and have tools to detect and know what to expect. It's not some peculiar polymer that we don't never, never heard of. And then we would have to magically develop some, some mechanisms of detection of something that we do not know. But, but nevertheless, it would be difficult to, to, to detect. It might very well be that some of remnants of such RNA world from very, very, very distant past is actually still around. And there are examples of life or not life, we can have a discussion about that as well, of naked RNA polymers that are parasitic and are essentially infectious agents. Those are, for example, viroids. And they are simply polymers of, let's say, 200 of such, such uh, um, letters and they both carry the information about their own existence and also both have the sufficient catalytic activity to hijack the cell components cellular life no regular cellular life components in this case the plant cells and uh, hijack them in a way that actually hijacks the machinery in a way that essentially catalyzes their own replication and the production of more of this little small polymers of uh, RNA. Mind that these are only a couple of hundred of nucleotides of these letters, and yet it is capable of such an unbelievable feat, which is the hijacking of the entire system, biochemical system of the cell, just to reproduce itself. I'm not saying that this, that viroids are actually remnants of, of, the, of the RNA world, but it's just to provide the viewers with an example of an entire layer of chemical systems or chemical life, I call it life, that is so tremendously different than anything else that we actually see, like, for example, the cellular life, like regular E. coli or an elephant or a palm tree and so on, which we call something that is familiar, which we call something that is familiar. But nevertheless, it is something that is still part of our own biosphere and our own daily life. We might not see it, of course, but we see an effect of it. If, for example, entire plantation of coconut trees suddenly dies and nobody knows why, and it occurs that this was actually an attack of a, of a viroid-like uh, uh, 
organism that is essentially naked RNA polymer and nothing else. This opens a very philosophical question, which I I very much think about quite often, is where does chemistry ends and biology really begins? And I don't know. And in, and these examples like viroids, for example, like these naked polymers of RNA, which are just 300 or 200 nucleotides long and nothing else, stretch the definitions of life quite a bit. And for some people, those, might, those are not going to be alive. For some other people, they are going to be alive because they exert function, they do things, and they essentially result in evolution, replication, and their own development, and also their own production of offspring and further, and further generations. So they might be quite alive. But this opens a possibility for unbelievable variations of strategies to live. Because what if we have some examples of RNA world of these various different creatures from the distant past that indeed survived in some very, very peculiar, very, very unexpected context in very few niches here on Earth. Maybe they are there and we just don't really know how to detect them. It was very difficult to detect viroids as well. They are very small. Their effect is their effect is they, we can what we can only see is that their effect is that some palm trees die, for example, quite massively and quite quite vigorously. But apart from that, if we didn't see the the economic impact of a viroid and the fact that it actually killed quite a bit of palm trees and affected the economy of certain towns and 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 villages in on the Pacific we would probably long uh, struggles to actually identify them and probably maybe even we, we wouldn't know about their existence for quite a long time. So there is a possibility, definitely, that there is many more of such various biochemical oddities and mysteries that remain to be detected. And maybe even they are remnants of our RNA world. We don't know. It might not be viroids. The RNA world might not be viroids because they actually interact with our own biosphere and biochemistry quite a bit so they are tailored again or evolved co-evolved together with our own regular life but uh, who knows maybe something something like that but a remnant of an arena world still exists now the next possibility is something that requires me to preface it because there is some weirdness here part of the strangeness of mars was first the labeled release experiment where something metabolized the uh, nutrients in the in the experiment which of course was called into question maybe it was chemical and not related to biology but also the discovery of the allen hills 84001 meteorite in antarctica that had structures in it that looked a lot like Maybe it was microbial life, the fossils of them. But the problem is, and one of the main objections to them, were that they were very, very much smaller scale than anything here on Earth that we know of so far, opening the idea up of nanobacteria. But that we could see those structures and debate them in a Mars rock may open up a way we could look for something like nanobacteria. Do you think that it's possible to detect them if they exist. And what implications does that have on um, the idea of a shadow biosphere? Yes, of course. So, so the one problem with, um, with uh, detections of uh, this weird life or small 
structures like nanobacteria and so on, is that essentially we've learned with the um, with the Martian meteorite story or any other on another story like similar similar detections even on, of Earth life, is that the morphological structures that we detect are rarely or I would say almost never can be actually utilized as a proof or evidence for living things. Because the, as we discussed on, on some other occasions as well, various non-biological processes could also produce oblong or spherical, spherical like, like, um, like structures. And sometimes the smaller they are, the more likely some, some of them form and so on and so on. Now, the nanobacteria is uh, from time to time there are examples of there are examples floated in the literature or postulated in the literature of some infectious agents that are also spherical that also have some potentially potential biological or biochemical reactions happening in them that even might actually be of inf might have an infectious infectious capability that actually um, are much smaller than the smallest known bacterial or cellular life. And what do I mean by the so-called smallest bacterial life or smallest cellular life? You might think about it this way. This biochemical machinery that all of us have in cells and so on. And if you, if, if, if even if if a cell is single, single cell, so the entire organism is just essentially a single cell, it's not. It, it actually takes volume. Yeah. So inside of a cell, you have this, you have this so-called cytoplasm. In this cytoplasm, is essentially all of these essential biochemical components float and do their their biological beating. So inside this little tiny cell, you have to pack sufficient information to actually run entire metabolism. So you have to have your genetic polymer. That's a must for every life. You have to have genetic polymer of a sort. Then you have to have all this executive branch of the, of the biochemistry, as we discussed. For example, in our case, it's, it's, it's our proteins and all of this complicated protein folded into folds, folds that also take space. So there actually happens, and people actually calculated this, that there is, if you have a standard cell, there are limits to the small, to the cell, cell sizes that you can have. And you cannot go lower than certain size. And in this case, not much lower than 0.2 micrometers in diameter, because you simply cannot pack all of your biochemistry with all the ribosomes that produce bio produce produce uh, proteins you cannot pack the dna so it contains all the genes for this and all the information for for to code all of these other biochemical machinery and so on so on so apparently there is at least as postulated there is this minimal size that a regular cellular life as we know it here on earth has to have and this is around 0.2 micrometer in diameter. Now, but this is assuming that they have this protein production machinery like we have, so ribosomes and so on, that they have genetic polymers packed in a way that everybody has and including bacteria and so on, and they have certain minimal number of genes and so on and so on. What if they have 
what if these nanobacteria, for example, and this is of course hypothetically speaking, have are not reliant on these large structures like proteins for their executive branch, for actually doing the bidding of their of their biochemistry, for living itself. What if they actually are some remnants of RNA world, or they base or they base themselves on RNA as a catalytic process for catalytic processes much more than on proteins. Uh, this is of course a speculation because this question of nanobacteria and their existence is still extremely controversial and I myself I'm not convinced that they actually exist but if they do exist then they would require quite ingenious ways of actually making their, their uh, biochemistry smaller in a sense and still be able to function and have all the, for example, all the machinery for the for the cell reproduction, for cell division and so on, if they have cellular structures like that and so on. So there is a possibility there, but there is this size limit for the regular life that we have. And if you go beyond, below this size limit, then you have to expect some different solutions to the problems that our life actually uh, solved by, for example, having a very complicated ribosomal systems for production of proteins. But it is not definitely not impossible, but we have to have that in mind. And of course, we shouldn't say that it is, um, it, there might be some situations in which you actually achieve these smaller sizes because you actually have a completely different way of, of, uh, of doing, like for example, having this RNA based catalytic systems instead of the instead of proteins or at least in much to much greater extent than than other life has so my last question for you is okay we find some weird life we stumble across something that that's very weird that <laughs> doesn't really look related to us how can we tell definitively and another part of this is that how do you prove you know, something found at Venus or something found at Mars truly is an independent genesis of life and separate from us and not just some circumstantial early offshoot from the same thing that um, life on Earth came from? Oh, this is this is a very, very loaded question and a very difficult one, because this essentially touches a question, uh, asks, asks a question, how do we know that more than one way of life's origin is possible? Because let's look at this. We talked a little bit about the or about RNA world. Um, let's assume that we have life originating. Maybe let's put Venus aside because the environment on Venus is a very different one. So we, if we find life on Venus, we would actually and this and this would be indeed life in sulfuric acid, using sulfuric acid as a solvent. We would have a, a pretty good idea or pretty good uh, evidence that it indeed. Uh, probably is a completely separate origin. But let's think about Mars. Mars is a planet that is that has environment that is much more similar to Earth than any other. I mean, at least in terms of general uh, general conditions, chemical conditions. Let's say let's say there is periodical liquid water and so on. Let's let's say that we have we have Mars. What if we find if we go to Mars and we find some microbe there? How do we really prove that it has different origin? And it depends what those differences are going to be. 
Because if this life still uses water as a solvent, or if it does, okay, let me put it this way. If it doesn't use water as a solvent, then the, then probably, for example, life, if there is life on Titan and it uses methane as a solvent, then the origin of, then the separate origin is almost certain. If this life uses water as a solvent, okay, the situation is more murky because now suddenly we have the same overall chemical environment or the same solvent for in which chemicals are going to be to be working and the same sort of chemical space or the possibilities of chemistry that is stable in, in water and can react with with water and each other so in principle that our chemical space of possibilities narrows down a little bit but now we have to start looking at what this chemistry actually looks like and let's say that we find that there is a different genetic polymer that it has a completely different different uh, um, different bases. So we talked a little bit about these bases like um, ATCG in our own DNA and so on. And even this peculiar virus that has this amino adenine that is Z, uh, uh, we still know that this is most likely, that is still part of our own tree of life. But what if all of those letters were actually quite different? Are we sure that this is a different occurrence and different origin of life? Or maybe that Martian life or any other planet's life or Martian life in our hypothetical example or and Earth-like life actually split much earlier before this actual actual genetic alphabet got, got, um, got decided upon. What if it actually what if it actually uh, was the material or the biological or the proto-biological material was actually transported from Mars to Earth be before all the four letters of the genetic code were decided. And then, let's say, uh, there's these two life paths got separated and on Earth, life chose, let's say, ATC, G and so on. And on Mars, life, on, life chose some other letters, but let's say one letter was kept the same and so on. And that is a possibility. Yes, we don't know wh when this panspermia event, for example, could happen is a very important indicator. It is, so finding other life also rules out the panspermia events or pushes it back in the in the history of the of the life's evolution quite a bit. Because if we if we now in our hypothetical scenario, we know that if we have different genetic genetic letters, we know that the panspermia, the recent panspermia is ruled out, but it has to be a panspermia that actually happened before this genetic polymer got settled down, before between those two planets. Now, in that regard, to figure to prove the origin, the separate origin between Mars and Earth, for example, we would have to look deeper at all the other components of this uh, of this both life examples. So we have to do a classical. I hope soon we are going to do this, but a comparative astrobiology. So what we would have to do is we would have to find out what are the main biochemical biochemical uh, building blocks of this life, apart from its genetics, apart even from proteins, because we can even assume that this protein that they that these two lives, Earth life and Martian life, has different proteins, but this doesn't really preclude they are, that they are related to each other. If they have some biochemical, very basic biochemical building blocks, 
and biochemical reactions that are the same, they might actually, this might be actually a clue to where, the, to if they are related or not. And so we essentially have to, for example, look at these very basic, very old uh, building blocks that life could have, that life on Earth has, and see if Martian life also has. And I remember that at some point you made a, made a video about isoprene as a biosignature in one of your um, on one of your on your main channel i think and the isoprene is one of these organic molecules that essentially is a gas and is produced by by pine trees and trees in general on earth but it as a building block as a biochemical building block it's essentially something that virtually every life on earth has it just uses this building block to polymerize it in many different ways to arrive at the diversity of chemistry and biochemistry quite a bit. Yes, so they arrive at all this diversity of chemistry that we have here on Earth. And this is so, so rare, so, so deep, so deeply rooted in the chemistry of our own life that if, for example, Martian life doesn't have it, but our own life has it, then it might be a further indication that indeed, uh, indeed, um, Martian life is a separate one. If it doesn't have these very, very basic biochemical building blocks, and how those biochemical building blocks are built is also an indication. So this is actually a very complicated, a kind of complicated topic. I do not know if I actually explained this clearly enough, but I hope that at least I gave, uh, I gave the viewers some guidance as to where to look for the absolute evidence of the separate origin. Where it's going to get amazing is when we have a candidate where we can start applying this and asking the question, is that actually shadow biosphere or is that alien? <laughs> you know, questions like that. We are out of time. Anush. It was a pleasure and I hope you'll come back soon and we can have a discussion about the Venus Life Finder mission. Thank you very much. I look forward to further, further, further interviews. Thank you very much to the viewers and everybody else for having me. Event Horizon and my channel are now available as a podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube memberships. Early ad-free episodes, bonus episodes, and sleep-focused content. Sign up now by clicking the links below to your platform of choice.